All right. Good morning. My name's Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. We're so glad that you're with us. There's probably no sermon I've been looking forward to more on the Sermon on the Mount than this one. I literally circled it, highlighted it when we first started our series, thinking, man, is there anything that's more relevant to our cultural moment than judge not lest you be judged? I mean, think about all the spaces you inhabit on a weekly basis. So think about like your workplace, if you're a manager, right? Like you're called to evaluate people all the time. Uh, People who share a cubicle with you, right? Like what do you do when just who they are and what they stand for runs against the grain of who you are and what you stand for? How do you evaluate job opportunities? How do you assess movements that are on campus, right? Like if you're a university student, right? Like all of these movements are kind of brought before you and everything with this sense of urgency like if you and you have to assess it really quickly like do I join this or not and if I don't join this what are the implications for my reputation on campus Um, if you're a parent right like your whole life is being a referee like you know you have multiple children you have grandchildren you're called to kind of assess and evaluate it and and really there's this question fundamental question behind all of this if you're a follower of Jesus is like should we ever judge them? I mean, people are always kind of saying, like, nobody can judge me except God alone. You know, like, uh, if you Google uh, Christian should not, the number one return on the search engine somewhere in that algorithm is uh, judge. And so the question is laid before us, like, um, Jesus says, don't judge that you will be judged, uh, that you be not judged. And yet it seems like as human beings we're called to judge. And so how do we think about this? Let me first start by saying what Jesus is, is not saying here. Uh, that word judge there is a, is a word crino. It has a pretty broad uh, range of meaning. And so um, on the one hand, it can mean uh, just evaluation, to, to separate or to discern uh, right from wrong, good or bad. And, um, and so what Jesus is not saying here is don't ever evaluate or assess or discern uh, someone's position. Don't think, don't judge, don't assess don't evaluate. And here's the reality. Like, um, everyone, we live in a world that is so judgy, right? Like, so judgy that, that longs to, uh, and, and, I, and I kind of made this distinction this morning as I was thinking about it. Um, interpersonally, we're, like, to people's faces, we're not very judgmental. But, like, online, we are scathingly judgmental. Like, we say things online that we would never dream of saying to somebody's face, right? But, like, We'll hashtag it, we'll, you know, give it a thumbs up or a thumb, you know, like we, everyone judges, everyone discriminates at some level to say that you shouldn't judge or to evaluate. Like some people are like, you should never judge anybody. Okay, that statement is judgmental. You ever thought about that? Like to say you should never discriminate is to discriminate against people who discriminate. So, like, there's even kind of an, ir- an irony built into this thing. But, like, we're always evaluating. We're always judging. If you don't believe that people are judgmental, you've never taken four kids under five into Starbucks, right? Like, into any coffee shop in Broader. But, like, your kid's presence in that room makes every person that's working at the coffee shop just very anxious, right? And they'll try to be nice at first. I have four kids, right? And there was a time when I had four kids under five. And, and, and people would just, oh, it's so sweet. Don't worry about it. And they're like texting their friend. Can you believe the nerve of this person bringing four small children into Hubbard and Craven at 630 a.m.? How dare you? You know, um, 
Like uh, restaurants discriminate against people smoking, right? You said can't do it anymore. Um, we, we discriminate against people who uh, drive on the left side of the road in America, right? We say, no, you have to drive on the right side of the road. We discriminate or we judge people who don't recycle. Some of us believe in, like, you know, salvation by recycling, and we judge anybody who doesn't use the trash can with the yellow uh, hood on it. We, we discriminate against people who drink and drive. Um, we throw them in jail. Uh, we discriminate in the educational system against sect- sex offenders who want to teach children. We judge and we say that's not right. Um, the IRS has this thing where they're pretty judgmental. They judge people who don't pay their taxes. Um, as a Southerner, um, there's probably no more judgmental group of people than basketball fans. Like if I wear my Kentucky jersey into Kilroy's, I'm taking my life in my own hands, right? Like, Watch it, you know, try watching like the NCAA tournament at Mo and Johnny's as the only UK fan in the room. Like people are super, super judgmental. And, and here's the reality. Yeah, exactly. It's spoken like a true Notre Dame fan. The worst. With good reason. They have a lot, a lot to stand on. But here's the thing. Uh, researchers have shown us, uh, there was a study done recently by some uh, researchers at NYU and Dartmouth, and they found that uh, the, the amygdala, the part of your brain that's responsible for emotional and social behavior, makes judgments about uh, other people's trustworthiness in about 30 milliseconds. Like, you can't not make judgments, right? It's part of what it means to be created in the image of God, right? God himself judges, right? God himself judges. Genesis chapter 1, he creates the world and he says, this is good, this is not good, right? That is judging, that is discerning, that is separating. Um, It's interesting that Jesus would say judge not because Jesus was very judgy. Like the whole Sermon on the Mount is a judgment, right? Like don't do this, do this. He's judging between what's right and what's wrong according to God's vision for the kingdom, right? The rest of Matthew 7, he's going to go on and say, there are prophets that are good and there are prophets that are bad. There's a way to build your life on rock and a way to build your uh, life on sand. Like, do this, don't do this. Matthew 22, 29, I'll put it up on the screen here for you. Jesus says to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, you are wrong, how judgmental of Jesus. Like, and we're cool with Jesus being judgmental with the Pharisees, but not with us, right? You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. John chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus says, The world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. How insensitive and rude and intolerant and narrow-minded of Jesus. The, the world's works are one of the labels that's thrown at Christians, right? If you're a believer in the workplace, right? Like 90% of Americans who are not uh, Christian, 90% of non-Christians, one of the labels they attach to Christians is that they're judgmental. And it's one of the reasons why they don't attend church. It's why many of you have not been to church in a long time, right? Because you grew up in a church and you were judged, you were excluded, you were condemned, you were put outside the camp, so to speak. And it's been a long time since you've been back. So the question here. Um, I think we need to wrestle with, is not will we judge. It is human to make informed judgments. You can't help it. It is part of the way that your brain works. It's part of the way that the world works. So the question isn't will we judge, but how will we judge? Not will we judge, but how will we judge? Because we see in the first five verses, Jesus says, be careful how you judge. Don't judge a certain kind of way. But then in verse 6, he's going to say, 
but judge, right? Like so, one commentator said it like this. The first five verses, Jesus says, don't be so critical. And then in verse six, he says, but be a little critical, right? And so how do we know when it's, when it's the right time to judge? And, and how do we make judgments? I think this is what Jesus is trying to get at. How do we make the kinds of judgments that bring healing and wholeness and life? Because there's a way to judge that brings destruction, that wounds and that harms and destroys and takes life, right? And then there's a kind of judgment that brings healing and that brings wholeness and that brings life. And so that's the invitation for us is discern, to discern between those two things. So let's start with this first section. Don't be so critical. Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged or that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured. This is a terrifying statement if you're a parent, right? Like, like be careful the ruler that you lay out on your kids because one day it's going to get flipped against you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck. Out of your brother's eye. And then down in verse 12 is kind of a summary of the Sermon on the Mount, but a summary of this section. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So what is Jesus saying? He's not saying we can't evaluate people. That word judge there um, really can mean to separate or to distinguish. And the judgment here that Jesus is saying is not appropriate for a follower of, of, of Jesus, for a, a citizen of the kingdom, is condemnation, not evaluation. He's talking about condemnation, not discernment. It's this idea of trying to play the judge, capital J, in somebody else's life, pronouncing a final judgment on them as if we could see their heart and their motivations and as if we really were God. It's, it's this attempt um, to try to play God in somebody's life. That's the judgment that Jesus is talking about. So there's a difference between judging and being judgmental. Judging and being judgmental. The kind of judgment Jesus is talking about here, this condemnation that we're to avoid. He talks, uh, Paul talks about in Romans chapter 14, verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. He's saying, who are you to play God in somebody else's life? You don't have the wisdom. You don't have the perspective. You don't have the insight. You don't have the resources to investigate thoroughly and to make any kind of binding judgment on somebody else. So stop doing it. Luke chapter 18, verse 9, Jesus calls out the religious leaders for the same thing. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. To condemn somebody else is to be confident in your own ability to play God in somebody else's life. It's to trust in yourself to be self-righteous by definition means to think that you have enough perspective and enough wisdom in and of yourself to play God in somebody else's life. And Jesus says, don't do that. So the difference between judgment and condemnation, the difference between judge, judging and judgmentalism might be said like this. You judge someone not when you assess their position, but when you dismiss them as a person. 
You judge someone not when you assess their position. We're called to assess. We're called to evaluate. But when you dismiss them as a person. Uh, a, a pastor friend of mine, J.D. Greer, uh, says it like this. It's what you do before and after you tell someone the truth that determines whether or not you are condemning or judging them. What do you do beforehand and then what do you do afterwards? We see Jesus forming judgments throughout the New Testament. But what he does after he judges, right? Like he, com- he becomes a human being. He enters into darkness, right? John chapter 1. John chapter 3, Jesus, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John three seventeen, the very next verse, which we often miss, says, I didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. So what does Jesus do after he judges, after he um, pronounces an assessment or an evaluation? He doesn't distance himself from us. He draws near to us. And that's the heart of uh, biblical judgment is it assesses a position and rather than casting the person off, it seeks to draw near the person. It seeks to draw them in further and closer rather than pushing them away. Now, how do you know when you're being judgmental? How do you know when you're condemning someone where he, give, he gives us a couple of keys here to pay attention to? First, he says, if you're being judgmental, you're probably more outraged or enraged at someone else's sin than you are embarrassed by your own. You're more outraged by somebody else's sin than you are embarrassed by your own. Notice this uh, kind of tragicomic uh, statement here of the speck and the log, right? It's intended to be comedy. Imagine a person uh, that has a speck in their eye and somebody comes to confront, try to get that speck out, and they've got this massive log. I mean, just kind of imagine like this being a Saturday Night Live skit. It probably has been at some point. I didn't look it up, but I'm sure that Saturday Night Live's had a field day with this at some point in the past. Um, and so you have somebody um, with a speck. Now, this speck, it could be a sin, or it could just be uh, a foible, a weakness, uh, something that people are blinded to. It's anything that a speck is just anything that would distort your ability to see reality clearly. Like Hebrews chapter 12 says, cast off both the sin and those things that entangle you and and keep you from running the race with full and free hearts. So it could be a weakness. It could be a vulnerability. It could be a sin pattern, right? Uh, But the point is, we need to get it out because it's impairing our vision. My daughter, um, a couple uh, months ago, uh, we noticed uh, something in her eye, just like a little fleck of something. And so... uh, uh, we tried to kind of get after it, and you know, if, if you have a speck in your eye, it's, it's just bothersome. You're, just, you know, you're constantly blinking, and, and you can't really see straight, kind of foggy vision. And she's like, I got something in my eye, and I just can't seem to get it out. And so, um, you know, when, when you have something in your eye, you need people to be gentle, right? Not rough. So, like, my first movement as a dad, uh, I'm not super gentle. I just like, you know, like move towards her with this, and she, you know, kind of backs up because. Uh, you know, when you have something, you're at, you need tissues, not drills and tweezers, tweezers, you know what I'm saying? Keep those tweezers away. Keep your fingers out of my eyes. You need someone who's skilled with clear vision. In our case, 
she ended up having a mole that had grown up on the inside of her eyeball, on her retina there, and we had to take her to a surgeon who, you know, has all the right tools and equipment and training and experience to get down in there. Uh, again, we need a surgeon, no offense, uh, I don't know if Nate's in the service, no offense, we need surgeons, not carpenters, right? Carpenters deal with saws and hammers. We need, uh, you know, very surgical instruments that have been sterilized to get into people's eye. It requires sensitivity, skill, insight to get it out. And so what he's saying here is that um, there's this interesting thing that we tend to do is to overvalue the sins of others while undervaluing our own sins. We tend to see very clearly the faults and foibles and sins of other people, oftentimes because it's the very things that we struggle with. And that's why I can see it so clearly in you is because I know it to be true of myself. That's why it makes me so angry to see pride in my sons. Because you know who's the most prideful person in our family? Like, they got that from somebody, right? Me. When I see competitiveness that that divides our family and creates disunity in my boys, it makes me so angry. Because I see it myself. That's what he's saying. You're more enraged at somebody else's sins. You're more angry. I mean, this is the world that we live in, right? Like, this is just otherwise known as social media. It's easy for me to get enraged about things that are happening in the world rather than stepping back to be embarrassed by things that are happening in my world. Is the volume of my criticism socially the same as my volume of criticism to myself personally? So we're more enraged at other people's sin than embarrassed by our own. And then the second thing is we cut off those who disagree with us. When you're judging someone, you cut them off, you write them off as hopeless, as irredeemable, as, uh, you know, not salvageable. And so you think about all the different things that divide us um, as Christians. Let's just talk about Christians, right? Um, Conscience issues, like Who did you vote for? Did you even vote in the last election? And like all these decisions that we have to make that the Bible doesn't give us a prescription on how to do this or how to do that. Really, like you have to you have to evaluate, you have to discern, you have to pray, you have to be really thoughtful about these things. Um, Things like parenting philosophy, like people are so judgmental about where you send your kids to school. Like we send our kids to private school. Okay. Like, you send your kids to public school. It's amazing how many people are like, I can't believe you would send your kids to private school. Or private school people are like, or homeschool people are like, I can't believe you would send your kids to public school. It's demonic. And, you know, the, like, the educational system's failing. And there's just so much judgment. I'm like, where are you sending your kid to preschool? You know, it's like, they're going to color. I don't know. It just, I want somewhere safe and fun. And yet, like how much judgment and side eye rolling and little comments that people make. Well, I could just never send my kids there. Or I'm not saying anything about you, but let me tell you what I'm doing. Basically, it's judgment, right? Like we do this on social media all the time. People will post a picture of something and then they'll say this. I'm so excited for you. And what that means is I hate you. Okay. Is that just me? Like I hate you. All of this judging that's going on. Our standard of living decisions. Do you live north of Kessler or south of Kessler? Do you live west of Meridian or east of Meridian? South of 38th or north of 38th? 
Like there's no Bible verse that says thou shalt live in the poorest part of the neighborhood or thou shalt not live in the wealthiest part of the neighborhood, right? Like how do you make decisions about how many bedrooms and how big of a yard and like all of these things that we have to decide as human beings. And they become points of judgment. And then what we do is when people don't agree with and see it the way we see it, we distance ourselves. We cut them off. We write them off. And here's the thing that Jesus is inviting us to do. He's saying to us, you must love the person more than you love your position. See, we love our positions more than we love people. People are projects to us oftentimes. And if they don't come around and see things the way that we see it, we write them off, we distance ourselves, we, we leave them, we say things like, don't cast your pearls before swines, right? This person's a pig, you know, this person's a dog. Clearly, they just don't see reality the right way. And so we, we distance, we unfriend them, we unfollow them, we conveniently stop overlapping with them, we push them away, right? Because we, um, I think, with good intentions, not wanting to compromise our position, then think, well, I can't have a relationship with them. Now, hear me, I'm not telling you to compromise your position. I'm not saying let's just all get along and let's not worry about who's right or wrong. No, you have to discern. But the point is, when you have a log in your eye, you can't see the person. You can't see the person. Notice the language here. He says, your brother. See, like when we're fighting and we're disagreeing and we're judging and condemning, we reduce people, we dehumanize people. We see them as one-dimensional or two-dimensional. Very binary, right? They're our enemy. Like, there's opposition, there's hostility between us and them. We don't see them as humans. We don't see them as brothers and sisters. Like, we can't even get along in the church, and yet we're sitting here calling out the culture wars when we can't get along with, like, our mother, our father, our brother, our sister, somebody in our missional community who sees life differently than we do. Jesus says, you must see people, not projects. You must love people more than you love your position and your need to be right. You can need to be right, or you can have friends. Some of us would rather be alone and right than take the log out of our eye. So that we can see our brothers and sisters. Guilty as charged. So what's the application for us here? It's a call to compassion. This is just what Jesus has been talking about the entire sermon. Be merciful. Show compassion, right? Be a gracious person. Henri Nouwen um, wrote a great book that I've referenced before called The Wounded Healer. He talks about the need for Christian leaders to be compassionate. We're just not very compassionate. We're often, we, 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 we've earned the label of judgmentalism that is often hung on us by our culture. Here's what he says. Christian leaders are people of God only insofar as they, were, they are able to make the compassion of God with humanity, which is visible in Jesus Christ, credible in their own world. Through compassion, it is possible to recognize that the craving for love that people feel resides also in our own hearts. That the cruelty the world knows all too well is also rooted in our own impulses. Through compassion, we also sense our hope for forgiveness in our friends' eyes and our hatred in their bitter mouths. When they kill, we know we could have done it. 
When they give life, we know that we can do the same. For a compassionate person, get this, nothing human is alien. No joy and no sorrow, no way of living and no dying. Nothing you're angry about on Twitter, you're incapable of doing. The seeds of those things are in your own heart. That's what he's saying. The log here is the critical spirit. Take the critical spirit out and you'll see clearly your own hypocrisy. Dallas Willard in The Divine Conspiracy also says this, We must be aware of believing that it is okay for us to condemn as long as we are condemning the right things. It is not so simple as all that. I can trust Jesus to go into the temple and drive out those who are profiting from religion, beating them with a rope. I cannot trust myself to do the same. You're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. Be careful. And so it's a call to compassion. It's also a call to be self-critical. To be way more self-critical than we are in terms of how we... we, we all, I mean, don't you always give yourself the benefit of the doubt if, if your motives are in question? I mean, it's amazing you never give other people the benefit of the doubt. Like they, this, there's like sinister motives. They got a handlebar mustache, you know, and they're like plotting your demise. You know, it's like you're, we're so paranoid. We're paranoid about everybody else except ourselves. We're skeptical about everyone except ourselves. We're doubtful of everyone except ourselves. We're cynical about everyone except ourselves. It's a call to be a self-critic before a social critic. It's the same thing that uh, the psalmist writes about David in Psalm 51, verse 10. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return. God, deal with me, clean me, renew me, refresh me, restore me. Then I'll be able to move out and to teach others your ways. He's not saying don't criticize. He's just saying apply the same standards and critique to yourself first that you would apply to other people. Don't be so critical of others. Treat others the way you would want to be treated. Don't you want the benefit of the doubt if there's confusion? I mean, if there's something going on between you and a friend, between you and a family member, don't you want them to extend you the benefit of the doubt? To not be suspicious of your motives? To say, hey, I didn't mean it like that. Or, you know, like he's saying, if you desire that for yourself, extend that same hospitality to other people. But be a little critical. Don't be so critical, but learn to be a little critical. And I'll say this, in person, like we've got to learn to do this in person. We struggle with this in person, like to somebody's face. We have a hard time being critical, right? We have a hard time being appropriately critical. And yet look at Jesus. He calls people animals to their face. They kill him for it eventually, right? But like Jesus is critical, don't give dogs what is holy, what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. We love the Jesus that says, judge not lest you be judged. We hate the Jesus that says, don't give dogs what is holy or give pigs pearls. How rude, Jesus. You know, like we want to say. The same Jesus says both, and so we must listen to both. What he's saying about dogs and pigs is not devaluing human beings, right? This is not about the worth of human beings. The reference to dogs and pigs, uh, to animals, was a reference in the Jewish mind. Again, the Jewish social architecture, uh, mental architecture, was a reference to outsiders, to Gentiles, 
who had no sense for or value for the kingdom of God. This idea of throwing your pearls before swines, pearls in the book of Matthew, is a reference to the gospel of the kingdom. If you want to read more about it, Matthew chapter 13, we have the parable of the pearl of great price. It's a reference to the pearl. So what he's saying is not that people are pigs and dogs in terms of their worthiness. He's saying, as you think about casting the gospel of the kingdom, as you think about you know, spreading the gospel of the kingdom in word and deed, pay attention and make sure you do it in a way that's helpful. He's not talking about worthiness, but helpfulness. Just like an animal, right? He's talking to the owners here, right? As you think about feeding the pigs, don't throw a pig before, a pearl before a pig. What happens when you throw a pearl before a pig? They sniff it, and then if they eat it, what's going to happen? It's going to cause all kinds of digestive issues, and it might choke them or hurt them or, or kill them. They have no ability to discern, you know, like there's no like piggy currency. You know what I'm saying? Like they can't discern, but it's like, it's like your five-year-old. You give them a $5 bill and they're like, they sniff it and they're like, okay, I can't do anything with it. I can't play. They start like wrapping stuff or coloring on it. They have no sense of value right at five years old. It's the same thing with people. He says people in that sense are like animals. They don't know what to value. They, they don't have an understanding of what really matters in life apart from a relationship with God. Or like a dog, they take a precious item and they rip it apart. So you can have dogs, you know, when you leave them home and you go to work and they come, you come back and your house has just been torn uh, up, up one side and down the other. They trample on it. And he said eventually um, they will come back and attack you because, uh, as Dallas Willard says, at least you're edible, right? Like if you keep giving them pearls, <laughs> they're going to they're gonna rip them apart and they'll eventually turn back on you because they can eat you at least. So how do we... Apply what Jesus is saying. I want to close here our last little section. This is a call for us, when you put this together with the first five verses, I think, to be what I'll just call a compassionate critic. A compassionate critic. I think this is the invitation for us as a community. We must evaluate. We must be critics, right? It is part of our calling as Christians to be truth-tellers. To be truth-tellers. We don't like that. It's hard. But it is our calling to be truth tellers. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. How do we balance those things? It's really challenging. John Stott, the great pastor and theologian, said, Our love grows soft if it is not strengthened by truth. And our truth goes hard if it's not softened by love. True, right? If I'm always loving, I become sappy and sentimental. I can never call anything out, right? And, like, that's a bad parenting philosophy. I mean, like, it may not seem like that when you're kids too, but wait till they're 22. Not a great parenting philosophy. Not a great way to be a teacher, an educator. Like, nobody wants a doctor who's not critical. I want the most critical doctor and surgeon on the planet. I want them to see it and say it, even if it hurts my feelings. But, on the other hand, if all we give is truth, our truth can grow hard. It can grow bitter, uh, brittle, right? And it can be harsh. It can just come across like an attack, like an assault. Some of us glory and consider a virtue to be like, you know, drive-by truth-tellers. 
our, you know, we're like mafia members. We're like our, our little guns, you know, from like the 1930s. Like, we just love it. And when people scurry and scatter away from us, we're like, see, they can't handle, you can't handle the truth. You know, we like, we just, we take this as a virtue as Christians. And Jesus is saying, be careful. You need to criticize, but don't glory in your criticism, right? Like, you are oftentimes turning people into pigs with the way you criticize. And they will turn on you and attack you. And don't think that's just because they're bad people. It's because you're a jerk. Honor Nowen says this, Critics do not shoulder every protest sign in order to be in with those who express their frustration more than their ideas, otherwise known as Twitter and Instagram. Nor do they easily join those asking for more protection, more police, more discipline, and more order. Now I'm getting political right in a long time ago. But they do look critically at what is going on and make decisions based on insight into their own vocation, their own calling, not on the desire for popularity or the fear of rejection. Here it is. They criticize the protesters as well as the rest seekers when their motives are false and their objectives dubious. We ought to be able to criticize. We ought to be able to judge. We must discern right from wrong if we're to be a community of holy love. That's the call in the Sermon on the Mount. Be a people of resilient love, a people of holy love. And it's hard, right? Because we live in this moment where people's identities are so fragile, right? Like, for good reason. We've basically grown up in a culture of self-esteem. Think about the last 30 years or so. Like, we grew up with most of us who are, let's say, I'm a Gen Xer, uh, even millennials, we've grown up with parents who were taught that, uh, that we are snowflakes and that we need to be treated very delicately and that we had low self-esteem scores, so don't give grades, don't evaluate sports performance, right? Um, despite the way the world didn't really work like that, but like tell your kids how amazing, how awesome they are. So we have this very, these very sensitive, fragile egos, right? We have a lot of shame, right? We're dealing with a lot of shame and we talked about anxiety last week. And so our egos, our sense of self is fragile. We need tons of affirmation. Like we are affirmation black holes, right? Anybody under the age of like 40 just desperately desires affirmation. I think all human beings do, but in particular this generational cohort, we desperately desire affirmation and encouragement. And we lack a solid identity as spiritual beings. So what happens when I criticize you is you tend to internalize that criticism. I am my behavior. Because I don't know who I am apart from my behavior. I am my behavior. Therefore, if you criticize my behavior, you're criticizing me. If you evaluate my behavior, you're evaluating me. That is all shame talking, right? Like that is all a lack of identity. That is all a lack. You are not your behavior. You are not what you do. Now, who, what you do is connected to who you are, but it is not the sum total of who you are. So to receive an evaluation ought to be received like a parent to a child as a gift, right? As an act of love. Hey, I see things that you can't see. I know that at 6 or 8 or 25, you think that you have the world figured out. But, like, I, I, I've been to college. Like, I, I, I know that when children run out on the road, cars, you know, turn them into roadkill, right? Like, I know a few things that you don't know. So maybe do you have the humility to see that what I'm offering you in this moment is a gift of love, is an act of love by offering you this critique. So let me just give you some practical things to think about here. One, be patient with people. Don't be pushy. 
That's what Jesus is saying. Be patient with people. Don't be pushy. Understand the season of life that somebody's walking in. Honor the pace of God in somebody's life. Learn to discern when they're ready to hear the truth and when they're not ready to hear the truth. That's why Jesus at certain seasons sent his disciples out and he said, if they receive the kingdom, go into their home, break bread with them and share a meal. If they don't, shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next town. They're just not ready. What you're doing here and being pushy and pushing all your pearls of wisdom on them at a pace they're not ready to receive it, you are crushing them. You are actually galvanizing them against the kingdom rather than softening them towards the kingdom. Understand that this is a lifelong journey and process that people are going to be on. Don't expect them to move at the pace that you moved. Everybody's on a different journey. Everybody's got a different script. Everybody's got a different story. Be patient. I love Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He talks about this very thing as a part of his story. After laying out his resume as a murderer, as a blasphemer, he says this, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the archetype, as the example, Jesus Christ might display his what? Perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I wonder if the Apostle Paul could have become a Christian. Some of the ways that we currently do evangelism. We count decisions. We oftentimes don't count how many people have been turned away. Something to think about. Be patient, not pushy. Let me give you from Galatians 6 just a couple of encouragements. I'll put the words on the screen. Just some ways to discern between when to give a critique and how to give a critique, how to be patient in our giving of criticism. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself. There's the same warning. Lest you too be tempted to be self-righteous and to be overly critical without properly examining yourself. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Some questions we can ask ourselves. Is this, notice he's talking to brothers, not to the world, not to um, everyone everywhere. You are not the self-appointed capital P prophet of the world. You are not the self-appointed, uh, you know, police uh, of your workplace. Okay. Like he says to Christians, um, to brothers, first, is it a sin? If it's not a sin, the Bible says overlook it, right? Just because they get on your nerves doesn't mean you have to engage them. Just because they're an ENTJ and you're an ENFP doesn't mean you have to engage them. Is it a sin? Secondly, am I the right person to do it? He says those who are spiritual, those who are mature, those who can balance their power with wisdom, right? We need a lot of wisdom, right? So the immature should not engage people. If you are a person that is immature, you should ask the question, am I the right person to give this judgment right now? Because maybe I haven't learned how to properly critique somebody. Thirdly, am I doing it with the right motivation? Not just to go off on somebody, not just to speak my mind. He said it ought to be to restore them to a relationship. I assess their position and I draw them in. That's the goal of criticism. The goal of criticism is to repair a breach in a relationship, not to just speak my mind or this is just me doing me and you've got to deal with me. No, it's about restoration. Then finally, am I willing, willing to walk with this person after I challenge them? If I'm not willing to walk with them, I should shut up. 
If I just want to get something off my chest, I should be quiet. Am I willing to walk it through with them, draw them in, pursue them, pray for them, befriend them, invite them into my home after I challenge them? So be patient, not pushy. Be discerning with your opportunities and limitations. Don't criticize everyone. Jesus didn't heal everyone. Paul didn't heal everyone. Be discerning. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Recognize seasons where people are not receptive and it's just not working. And shake the dust off your feet and move on to the next town. Receive your limitations. Be discerning in how you spread the pearl of great price. Man, this is hard. This is hard truth that Jesus brings to us. But Jesus is inviting us to a different way of being in the world. He says, don't be so critical. Don't be judgmental. But be a little critical. Judge with compassion, with wisdom, right? After you've examined yourself, step into that space because all of us have specks in our eyes that we need to be taken out. How is it going to get out unless through the skillful, sensitive surgery of friends who love us and care about us, have the courage to step towards us with love, with tissues, and with a relationship, draw us near as they're assessing our position. God, help us. This seems like an impossible task. And we need God's help. And it's only by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that we're able to enter this space with any sense of power or authority or wisdom, right? Because Jesus himself modeled this for us. He was the pearl who got thrown before pigs, who got thrown before the pigs and the dogs, so to speak, of humanity. He entered into a world that received him, not that literally tore him into pieces that trampled him under their feet. But why? He did it so that we might be saved. Remember John chapter 3, verse 17. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He was torn apart so that we could be brought near. He calls us friends. He reconciles former enemies, those who have hostility against God, and he draws us close and he says, I want to have a relationship with you. I want you to be saved. I want you to be rescued. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to hear this invitation. God's judgment is not to condemn you. Romans chapter 8, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When God evaluates us, he's saying like Jesus' very entrance into the world was an indictment. It was a judgment. It's God saying, humanity, you're not okay. You are not okay. You are not enlightened. You are not smart. You are not as free as you think you are. You are under the judgment of God, but it is a judgment that saves. It is a judgment that heals. It is a judgment that brings life and wholeness. It is a judgment that we need in order to become fully human. That's why Jesus came, and that's the invitation. If you're not a follower of Jesus, receive that. Let it offend you, and then let it draw you. And if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, let's take some time as we come to communion to recognize the many ways that we are judgmental and ways that that repel people away from the kingdom of God. And let's recommit ourselves to being a community of compassionate critics. Like, our world desperately needs compassionate critics. Compassionate critics. Every week we celebrate communion. We celebrate the fact that Jesus was torn so that we could be made whole. 
I want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to come and receive communion with us. We have stations at the front, stations at the back. Take a piece of the bread, tear it off, and dip it into the cup, and then return to your seat.